The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Here we go. Hello, everyone. How are you? Safe and sound, I hope. The news out there is bleak all over the world. We are trapped inside our homes, waiting for the hammer to fall. What we hear from the outside world is not good. Hospitals are starting to become overwhelmed here where I live in the United States, in New York City in particular, and even worse in some other countries like my beloved Italy where they are ahead of us on this awful curve. And the fear and trembling is stretching into all walks of life. This is not the place for coronavirus news. My purpose here isn't to extend the reach of the news, but to provide a temporary safe haven from it. I'm doing what I can for us to endure these nightmarish conditions. We have to have some respite, too. We have to sleep. We have to exercise. We have to stay mentally healthy. When under attack, we need friends as well as enemies. We need strong hearts and strong minds. And so we turn to literature and to discussions of literature to help us make it through. I'm trying to increase the content here, sending out some extra shows. We have a big back catalog, a couple hundred episodes out there, all for free. But some of you have already listened to all of those, and I know a lot of you could use some extra content. You're spending a lot of hours on your own, sometimes alone, sometimes alone except for small children. You could use a friendly, grown-up voice in your ears. That's what we'll try to provide. A listener sent me a note that she goes for walks. This is what she told me in the note. She goes for walks along the train tracks outside her town, which reminded me of my own childhood and the way a set of train tracks can make a beautiful path. You never get lost following the train tracks. She said that the length of our episode Gusev by Chekhov was just the, right, just the right amount of time to keep her company during her walk. Her note filled my eyes with tears. I know that sounds sappy, but it's a strange thing for me to sit here in solitude, reading and thinking and then talking and recording, to send this little... Thing out into the world and to have someone choose to listen it becomes part of their day it gives me a little faith a little hope we're going to survive this people there will be pain but we'll muddle through today we're going to talk about an american author named kate chopin who lived years and years ahead of her time this is a special request from a listener we've had others too some other requests. Another writer who gets mentioned a lot is Guy de Maupassant. And that seems appropriate to mention because Kate Chopin was a fan of Maupassant. I am too. We'll talk about what makes him so great in an upcoming episode, I promise. But today, we travel to Louisiana of the late 19th century, a world of plantations and slavery and the legacy of slavery. A discussion of Kate Chopin, including her story, Desiree's Baby, coming up 
after this. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Kate Chopin was born in St. Louis, Missouri in 1850. Her father was a businessman from Ireland. Her mother traced her lineage to French Canadians by way of Louisiana. They were Roman Catholic, and Chopin herself went to school in a convent and was taught by nuns. After her father died, Chopin was brought home to live with her mother, her grandmother, and her great-grandmother, giving her a very unusual home-life situation. Three generations of women to take care of her, all widowed at a young age, none of whom ever remarried. One can only imagine how this might have impacted Chopin, who would go on to become a writer known for her pioneering feminism. When she was 11, the Civil War broke out in St. Louis. Her half-brother died of a fever. Her beloved great-grandmother, who had been her primary tutor, also died. And her friend and her friend's family were banished from St. Louis for having supported the Confederacy after the war was over. I've heard D.C. described as either the southernmost northern city or the northernmost southern city in America, and maybe that's true on the eastern seaboard. But St. Louis can probably make that claim in the middle part of the country. If you Google Missouri even today, the first auto-suggestion is Missouri Compromise, which allowed Missouri to enter the Union as a slave state to keep the balance of power between North and South, as Maine was being admitted at the same time as a free state. In the run-up to the Civil War, Missouri was a border state, and the Civil War tore it in half. The state sent soldiers to both the Union and the Confederate armies, and both sides claimed Missouri with a star on their flag. Missouri had dual governments. St. Louis itself remained under Union control throughout the war, but with the Confederacy just outside the city gates, as it were. 
But Chopin was headed south anyway. She married a man named Oscar Chopin, who was from New Orleans. And after a marriage in St. Louis in 1870, a wedding in St. Louis, the two of them relocated to New Orleans. He was a cotton broker, but his business failed, so he turned his hand to plantation ownership and running a general store. Those didn't do well either. And when he died in 1882, Kate was left with tens of thousands of dollars in debt almost a half a million dollars in today's currency. There are some stories that Kate tried to make a go of it after her husband's death. Flirting with the men she did business with, outrageously flirting, according to one biographer. She had at least one relationship, quote-unquote, with a married farmer. Whatever tactics she employed did not, in the end, prove sufficient. And she moved back to St. Louis to be with her mother, her mother having paid for the cost of the journey. A year later, her mother died. Now Kate was depressed. Incredibly, her obstetrician, of all people, suggested that she start writing as a source of therapeutic healing. He was a family friend, and apparently he also believed she would be good at writing and could earn some money. She did just that, or at least she tried. In the 1890s, her writing took off. She wrote over a hundred short stories in two novels within a period of 15 years. Her most famous work, her novel The Awakening, was published in 1899. Critics attacked it. They said that the ladies were not ladylike. What kind of a novel teaches ladies not to be ladylike? <sighs> Can you imagine taking that kind of view of literature? How cramped the mind must be to think that novels are stories that should be told for the sake of constant self-improvement and the continuous reinforcing of social norms rather than the raw power of exploring the human condition, asking questions about it, challenging, provoking, delivering unexpected insights. Fortunately, some people liked the book, even at the time, and long after her death, the work gave Chopin a legacy as a writer whose fearless observation and sharp insight made her an important figure in the history of literature. In the 1970s, the book was rediscovered, and it's been a staple of feminist literature ever since. But the book didn't make her much money. She turned to short story writing instead, found a lot of magazines to publish in, but those didn't make her much money either, or not enough, and she ended up relying primarily on money she had inherited from her mother. In 1904, she suffered a brain hemorrhage while attending the St. Louis World's Fair, and died two days later. Where does Kate Chopin fit on the timeline? She was born in 1850, the year that Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter was published, two years before Uncle Tom's Cabin. Her contemporaries in the period of her writing, roughly 1890 to 1904, were Henry James, Stephen Crane, Charlotte Perkins Gilman. She was slightly behind Twain and Whitman, two of the more famous writers of her younger years, and slightly ahead of Edith Wharton. She was recognized in her time as different for her Louisiana settings and the local color, quote-unquote, of the Creoles and Cajuns and ethnic French and other inhabitants. She captured their way of speaking, the way of acting, the way of life. Less appreciated were the themes of women being placed in confines and suffering the consequences. She fought against the Victorian ideas of her age, setting forth women as 
full-bodied human beings capable of passion, including sexual passion, and searching for sexual fulfillment. In much of her work, women have their own wants and needs, which was unusual for the time. And even when they don't, as we'll see in Desiree's Baby, the fact that they don't is central to the tragic outcome of the story. She took her cues from French author Guy de Maupassant and his short stories, saying, quote, I read his stories and marveled at them. Here was life, not fiction. For where were the plots, the old-fashioned mechanism and stage trapping that in a vague, unthinkable way I had fancied were essential to the art of story-making? Here was a man who had escaped from tradition and authority, who had entered into himself and looked out upon life through his own being and with his own eyes, and who, in a direct and simple way, told us what he saw. End quote. That's what she did as well. And Desiree's baby is best viewed in that light. The story is very short and changes point of view, and it doesn't follow the conventional mechanics of short stories then in vogue. But it tells its story. It's almost like a fairy tale or a pop song or a ballad, though it's much closer to literature than any of those. It goes deeper, giving us more context, a flavor of the past and present and perhaps the future. It jumps back to the period before the Civil War, the Louisiana of plantations being worked by slaves. I'll talk more about this after we hear the story, but for now, I'll just say it's about women and their fate within marriages and about miscegenation, the mixing of races, and how the fear of that plays into the minds of white people. You'll hear the word quadroon in this story, and that's the word that was used for people who were a quarter black. This is important in determining the legality of the individual. Couldn't be considered a white person in some states if you were a quarter black. Other states had a one-drop theory, one drop of black blood. Any ancestor that you could trace who was of African descent made you no longer eligible to be white, legally speaking. For a lot of states, these laws were put in place later, in the 20th century. Throughout the 1800s, for example, Virginia's law was one-fourth. You were considered black in the eyes of the law if you had at least one black grandparent. That's a quadroon. They considered a tougher standard at the time, the people of Virginia, but they worried that too many people who considered themselves white and who were living as white would suddenly find themselves changed to black overnight. They would lose all their status as a white person. They'd be denied all the privileges associated with being a white person. But then in 1910, they changed to 1 16th and to a one-drop law in 1924. What happened? Did they get more racist? Well, maybe. But maybe they also started fogging up people's memories and family genealogy. This is ugly stuff. The kind of decisions you're forced to make when you're denying people legal rights that you've talked yourself into in spite of a Declaration of Independence, the nation's founding document that says that all men are created equal. Equal, yes, but some equal is more equal than others. Are you worthy of being an equal? That depends. Are you one of us or one of them? 100%? How about 75%? 50 How much impurity do you have? 25%? 125 Six and a quarter? 
I feel a kind of choking feeling, even saying the words. This is vile, repugnant stuff, and we're still living with it. Thank God that two consenting adults are allowed to marry. My God. People in love are people in love. Let's celebrate that just as we celebrate parenthood and babies laughing and cat videos. Some things are inherently good. People in love, in love in spite of the world pushing them apart. That's a great thing. To make it illegal, to deny them that right. Do you know how they justified that? How the courts justified it? How the judges writing opinions that had to justify a one-drop law, a miscegenation law. Remember, the Constitution has an equal protection clause, guarantees rights to all citizens. And here's a white man and a black woman who want to be married, and they can't be because of their race. Is that giving an equal right to all citizens? This is the story of Loving v. Virginia. By the way, famous court case. But before that, courts said no. Courts said, well, it's fine. Miscegenation laws doesn't discriminate because she can't be married to him and he can't be married to her either. See, black woman, white man, skin color doesn't matter. They're being treated equally. Neither one can marry. It's a flawed argument, <laughs> obviously but it's a flawed view of the world. One more thing on Chopin before we get to the story. This is about Chopin and her view of women. She had a bone to pick with Charles Darwin. Remember that Darwin said that natural selection was the mechanism for evolution. And he said that for humans, men had gained the power of selection. Chopin said, what are you talking about? You think women don't have a say in this? In love, in sex, in childbirth, women select it's hard to argue with that. It says a lot that Chopin is considered brave for having done it. It says a lot about her and about her times. But she was a brave person, writing about subjects other people didn't touch, applying her intelligence and energy to the world around her, just like her hero, Maupassant. She's the Maupassant of the bayou, which is not a bad thing to be. Kate Chopin's story, Desiree's Baby, and then some commentary on the story after this. Desiree's Baby by Kate Chopin As the day was pleasant, Madame Valmondé drove over to Labry to see Desiree and the baby. It made her laugh to think of Desiree with a baby. Why, it seemed but yesterday that Desiree was little more than a baby herself, when Monsieur, in riding through the gateway of Valmondé, had found her lying asleep in the shadow of the big stone pillar. The little one awoke in his arms and began to cry for Dada. That was as much as she could do or say. Some people thought she might have strayed there of her own accord, for she was of the toddling age. The prevailing belief was that she had been purposely left by a party of Texans, whose canvas-covered wagon, late in the day, had crossed the ferry that cotton mice kept just below the plantation. In time, Madame Valmondé abandoned every speculation but the one that Desiree had been sent to her by a beneficent providence to be the child of her affection, 
seeing that she was without child of the flesh. For the girl grew to be beautiful and gentle, affectionate and sincere, the idol of Valmonde. It was no wonder when she stood one day against the stone pillar in whose shadow she had lain asleep eighteen years before, that Armand Aubigny, riding by and seeing her there, had fallen in love with her. That was the way all the Aubignys fell in love, as if struck by a pistol shot. The wonder was that he had not loved her before, for he had known her since his father brought him home from Paris, a boy of eight, after his mother died there. The passion that awoke in him that day, when he saw her at the gate, swept along like an avalanche, or like a prairie fire, or like anything that drives headlong over all obstacles. Monsieur Valmondé grew practical and wanted things well considered, that is, the girl's obscure origin. Armand looked into her eyes and did not care. He was reminded that she was nameless. What did it matter about a name when he could give her one of the oldest and proudest in Louisiana? He ordered the corbet from Paris and contained himself with what patience he could until it arrived. Then they were married. Madame Valmondé had not seen Desiree and the baby for four weeks. When she reached Labrie, she shuddered at the first sight of it, as she always did. It was a sad-looking place, which for many years had not known the gentle presence of a mistress, old Monsieur Aubigny having married and buried his wife in France, and she having loved her own land too well ever to leave it. The roof came down steep and black like a cowl, reaching out beyond the wide galleries that encircled the yellow stuccoed house. Big, solemn oaks grew close to it, and their thick-leaved, far-reaching branches shadowed it like a pall. Young Aubigny's rule was a strict one, too, and under it his negroes had forgotten how to be gay, as they had been during the old master's easy-going and indulgent lifetime. The young mother was recovering slowly and lay full length in her soft white muslins and laces upon a couch. The baby was beside her, upon her arm, where he had fallen asleep at her breast. The yellow nursewoman sat beside a window, fanning herself. Madame Valmondé bent her portly figure over Desiree and kissed her, holding her an instant tenderly in her arms. Then she turned to the child. This is not the baby she exclaimed in startled tones. French was the language spoken at Valmondé in those days. I knew you would be astonished, laughed Desiree, at the way he has grown. The little cochon de lait. Look at his legs, Mama, and his hands and fingernails, real fingernails. Zandrine had to cut them this morning. Isn't it true, Zandrine? The woman bowed her turbaned head majestically. My see, madame. And the way he cries went on Desiree, is deafening. Armand heard him the other day as far away as La Blanche's cabin. Madame Valmondé had never removed her eyes from the child. She lifted it and walked with it over to the window that was lightest. She scanned the baby narrowly, then looked as searchingly at Zandrine, whose face was turned to gaze across the fields. Yes, the child has grown, has changed, said Madame Valmondé slowly as she replaced it beside its mother. What does Armand say? Desiree's face became suffused with a glow that was happiness itself. 
Oh, Armand is the proudest father in the parish, I believe, chiefly because it is a boy to bear his name, though he says not that he would have loved a girl as well. But I know it isn't true. I know he says that to please me. And Mama, she added, drawing Madame Valmondet's head down to her and speaking in a whisper, he hasn't punished one of them, not one of them, since baby is born, even Negrion, who pretended to have burnt his leg that he might rest from work. He only laughed and said Negrion was a great scamp. Oh, Mama, I'm so happy. It frightens me. What Desiree said was true. Marriage, and later the birth of his son, had softened Armand d'Albigny's imperious and exacting nature greatly. This was what made the gentle Desiree so happy, for she loved him desperately. When he frowned, she trembled, but loved him. When he smiled, she asked no greater blessing of God. But Armand's dark, handsome face had not often been disfigured by frowns since the day he fell in love with her. When the baby was about three months old, Desiree awoke one day to the conviction that there was something in the air menacing her peace. It was at first too subtle to grasp. It had only been a disquieting suggestion, an air of mystery among the blacks, unexpected visits from far-off neighbors who could hardly account for their coming. Then a strange, an awful change in her husband's manner, which she dared not ask him to explain. When he spoke to her, it was with averted eyes, from which the old love light seemed to have gone out. He absented himself from home, and when there, avoided her presence and that of her child without excuse. And the very spirit of Satan seemed suddenly to take hold of him in his dealings with the slaves. Desiree was miserable enough to die. She sat in her room one hot afternoon in her peignoir, listlessly drawing through her fingers the strands of her long, silky brown hair that hung about her shoulders. The baby, half-naked, lay asleep upon her own great mahogany bed that was like a sumptuous throne with its satin-lined half-canopy. One of LaBalanche's little quadroon boys, half-naked too, stood fanning the child slowly with a fan of peacock feathers. Desiree's eyes had been fixed absently and sadly upon the baby, while she was striving to penetrate the threatening mist that she felt closing about her. She looked from her child to the boy who stood beside him, and back again, over and over. Ah! It was a cry that she could not help, which she was not conscious of having uttered. The blood turned like ice in her veins, and a clammy moisture gathered upon her face. She tried to speak to the little quadroon boy, but no sound would come at first. When he heard his name uttered, he looked up, and his mistress was pointing to the door. He laid aside the great soft fan and obediently stole away over the polished floor on his bare tiptoes. She stayed motionless, with gaze riveted upon her child, and her face the picture of fright. Presently, her husband entered the room and, without noticing her, went to a table and began to search among some papers which covered it. Armand, she called to him in a voice which must have stabbed him if he was human, but he did not notice. Armand, she said again. Then she rose and tottered towards him. Armand, she panted once more, clutching his arm. Look at our child. What does it mean? Tell me. 
He coldly but gently loosened her fingers from about his arm and thrust the hand away from him. Tell me what it means, she cried despairingly. It means, he answered lightly, that the child is not white. It means that you are not white. A quick conception of all that this accusation meant for her nerved her with unwanted courage to deny it. It is a lie. It is not true. I am white. Look at my hair. It is brown. And my eyes are gray. Armand, you know that they are gray. And my skin is fair. Seizing his wrist. Look at my hand. Whiter than yours, Armand. She laughed hysterically. As white as LeBlanche's, he returned cruelly and went away, leaving her alone with her child. When she could hold a pen in her hand, she sent a despairing letter to Madame Valmondet. My mother, they tell me I am not white. Armand has told me I am not white. For God's sake, tell them it is not true. You must know it is not true. I shall die. I must die. I cannot be so unhappy and live. The answer that came was brief. My own Desiree, come home to Valmondet. Come back to your mother who loves you. Come with your child. When the letter reached Desiree, she went with it to her husband's study and laid it open upon the desk before which he sat. She was like a stone image, silent, white, motionless, after she placed it there. In silence, he ran his cold eyes over the written words. He said nothing. Shall I go, Armand? She asked in tones sharp with agonized suspense. Yes, go. Do you want me to go? Yes, I want you to go. He thought Almighty God had dealt cruelly and unjustly with him and felt, somehow, that he was paying him back in kind when he stabbed thus into his wife's soul. Moreover, he no longer loved her because of the unconscious injury she had brought upon his home and his name. She turned away like one stunned by a blow and walked slowly towards the door, hoping he would call her back. Goodbye, Armand, she moaned. He did not answer her. That was his last blow at fate. Desiree went in search of her child. Zandrine was pacing the somber gallery with it. She took the little one from the nurse's arms with no word of explanation, and descending the steps, walked away under the live oak branches. It was an October afternoon. The sun was just sinking. Out in the still fields, the Negroes were picking cotton. Desiree had not changed the thin white garment nor the slippers which she wore. Her hair was uncovered, and the sun's rays brought a golden gleam from its brown meshes. She did not take the broad, beaten road which led to the far-off plantation of Valmonday. She walked across a deserted field where the stubble bruised her tender feet so delicately shod and tore her thin gown to shreds. She disappeared among the reeds and willows that grew thick along the banks of the deep, sluggish bayou, and she did not come back again. Some weeks later, there was a curious scene enacted at Labrie. In the center of the smoothly swept backyard was a great bonfire. Armand Aubigny sat in the wide hallway that commanded a view of the spectacle, 
and it was he who dealt out to a half a dozen negroes the material which kept this fire ablaze. A graceful cradle of willow, with all its dainty furbishings, was laid upon the pyre, which had already been fed with the richness of a priceless layette. Then there were silk gowns, and velvet and satin ones added to these, laces too, and embroideries, bonnets and gloves, for the corbet had been of rare quality. The last thing to go was a tiny bundle of letters, innocent little scribblings that Desiree had sent to him during the days of their espousal. There was the remnant of one back in the drawer from which he took them, but it was not Desiree's. It was part of an old letter from his mother to his father. He read it. She was thanking God for the blessing of her husband's love. But above all, she wrote, night and day, I thank the good God for having so arranged our lives that our dear Armand will never know that his mother, who adores him, belongs to the race that is cursed with the brand of slavery. Desiree's Baby by Kate Chopin, published in 1893. So, what do we think of Desiree's Baby? It has aspects of melodrama, and whenever we have melodrama, we have to analyze whether the actions are earned. Let's get the story on the table first. Let's summarize. We're in the antebellum South, the period before the Civil War, a world marked by slavery, the brand of slavery, cursed with the... the Sorry, cursed with the brand of slavery, as Armand's mother says in her letter. The story opens with what I'll call the grandmother, the visit of Madame Valmondé, a wealthy French Creole woman, to her adopted daughter's Desiree's house. Desiree had been a foundling, a little baby, that Monsieur Valmondé found in the shadow of a stone pillar near the gateway to the Valmondé's mansion. Her parents were unknown. Her origins are unknown. The story hinges on that point. She doesn't know who her parents are. Nobody does. But fortunately for her, the Valmondés have no children of their own, and they raise her in a loving home. Her mother dotes on her. When she turns 18, she catches the eye of a neighbor, Armand, He's part of a family, the Albanese, known for being passionate, falling in love, love that overcomes all obstacles, we hear. Remember that for later. They also have a different way of treating their slaves. The father was gentle, patient, easygoing. Armand is not. Desiree loves Armand in spite of this, and he seems happier than before. He loves her, too. He even treats his slaves with more patience and kindness. Love is having its effect. Then Desiree has a baby. Nothing could be better. The baby's a boy. Good for Armand. He likes that. The family is growing, bringing love and joy to this little corner of the world. Maybe growth is possible even for someone like Armand. Maybe his heart will open a little wider. And then, disaster. It becomes 
clear that the baby has the same colored skin as a quadroon. That ugly word invented to say that a person is one quarter black. Suddenly, Desiree's unknown origins come roaring back into importance. She is part black. She must be. Armand is furious, and he's disgraced, humiliated. She's desperate now. What can she do? She realizes what this means for her, and she's so miserable. Armand is her whole world. She carried his baby, and now he's rejecting the two of them. He hates her for what she's done. Well, that's not exactly correct, is it? He maybe thinks of it that way, that she's done something to him. But really, he hates her for who she is, for what she is. Is there anything uglier than that? We'll talk about Armand in a little bit. So Desiree writes to her adopted mother, who, thank God, does not reject Desiree or the baby. Come home, says the mother. Come home where you are loved. Desiree takes the baby and doesn't go home. She goes into the field where she disappears, never heard from again. And then the kicker. Armand creates a big bonfire of Desiree's things, her clothes, the blankets, the cradle itself, and her letters. And among her letters, he finds a new letter with information he's never learned before. It's a letter from his mother to his father in which she thanks God that Armand will never know that his mother is black. It's an ending with a twist. And like melodrama, we ask whether it's earned. What does it mean? Is it just a surprise, a trick, or does it deepen the power and meaning of the story? Remember, this is sort of an O. Henry-type ending. This is the world before Joyce and the Epiphanies took over. The surprise endings doesn't deepen the reading. They don't deepen the reading experience necessarily. Comes at the end. That's how it works here, too. But I think, in this case, it does deepen how we feel about the story. It tells us more about the characters. I think we need to talk about two main characters, Desiree and Armand. The story belongs to both of them. It was, in fact, originally published under the title The Father of Desiree's Baby. Desiree's Baby is a better title, but The Father of Desiree's Baby reveals something, too. Chopin understood that this was as much about Armand as it was about Desiree. We even dip into Armand's point of view at one point. So... We're in the South. We have deeply embedded racism. Race-based slavery is so insidious, it warps the mind. Advocates of slavery, supporters of it, those willing to live within it, to live within it and still think of themselves as Christians and God-fearing and moral and righteous, had to create for themselves a lot of myths and beliefs in order to justify what was happening. We see that even today in America. You can argue for what is the greatest, most inhuman activity imaginable. What's the cruelest, most barbaric practice? Genocide is bad, right? The Holocaust, torturing innocent people, also awful, right? Only sadistic monsters would do that. How about buying and selling human beings, giving the owners the power to control them in every aspect of their lives, whipping them with impunity, maybe at your whim? separating families, doing all this for personal gain, for profit, that's on the spectrum too. Spectrum of horrors, atrocities. I mentioned modern-day America. I'm talking about 
taking people at the border, separating mothers from their children and keeping them all in cages. How do you live with yourself? You say that they deserved it. You say that it was the mothers who should have known better. You deny that you yourself have any agency in the decision, that it's the mothers, it's their fault. You say you're only punishing lawbreakers. You say that it's the only way to deter future lawbreakers. None of that holds up. It's a fiction. It's not against the law to seek asylum. There's nothing in any moral code that says that a suitable punishment for breaking any law, let alone the laws alleged to have been broken at the border, is to separate mothers from children and keep them all in cages. But we can't live with the truth that the policy is monstrous. The consequences are monstrous, and we are monsters for having it carried out in our, on our territory in our name. So we say it's not our fault. It's the fault of the mothers. Our treatment of the children is the fault of the mothers. Slavery was this times a million. It was open. It was ever-present. It was a hundred years or more of living within a set of myths and lies. We're going to talk a lot more about this in an upcoming episode. It's, in fact, already recorded and scheduled. I think it comes out next Monday, our episode on Phyllis Wheatley. So I won't repeat it all here, but for the purposes of this story, Desiree's Baby, we need to talk about one of them in particular. What do you do about miscegenation when you live in a a slave society, a race-based slave society, or a racist society? miscegenation, the mixing of races. What do you do when you have a baby with mixed racial background? Is it the baby's fault? Does that even need to be asked? Is it anyone's fault? Can you say it's the parent's fault, the way we do with immigration cases? How can skin color be anyone's fault? Nobody asks to be the color they are. They don't do something. This isn't like the fiction of the mother who shows up at the border where you could say, oh, she took some action. She knew the risks. The baby is somehow tainted by the risks the mother took. Desiree's baby didn't ask to be black, and neither did Armand, and neither did Armand's mother, and neither did any of their ancestors as far back as you can go. That's the problem with this society. Race is treated as a crime, and it's a crime that has no one to blame. Criminal law is founded on these principles that you need a voluntary act and you need a state of mind. Criminal act, criminal intent. What Chopin does here with her ending is to expose the injustice of it all. Armand treats Desiree like a criminal, like her secret makes her unworthy, villainous, like he's been the victim. And we think, but she's blameless. She didn't ask to be black. She didn't even know she was. And how can you get rid of her and her baby, your own flesh and blood, how can you accuse them of this and treat them this way? And so we indict him and the system in which he lives, the poisoned atmosphere, the ugly and insidious slave system that makes him prefer to be alone without his love, without his child, than to have this stain on his conception of himself and his family. We think, what a stubborn idiot. And we recognize that he's a product of a warped point of view. It's instructive to us, even in 2020, because racism is still with us. And for Chopin, writing in 1893, it was even more powerful. This was not even 30 years after slavery had been abolished. The slaveholders were still alive and kicking, fuming. They didn't adopt an enlightened view. They didn't wake up from their fog state and say they needed to make amends. They doubled down. 
angry, resenting the North, lamenting their lost way of life, inventing new myths to help themselves believe in white supremacy and usher in a whole new wave of racism. Slavery gone, racism still alive and well. And if we don't fully appreciate what Chopin is saying here, that Armand's hate is the outcome of a twisted system that blames the innocent and turns acts of love into causes for hate, that drains the humanity from people and turns them into commodities to be discarded like malformed products. Chopin drives the point home further with the surprise twist. Desiree and her baby, the perpetrators of the blameless crime, were not even the perpetrators. Armand was. Armand had the black blood. It came from his mother. And look at this point. It's easy to miss. Armand's father knew that about his mother. Armand's father knew that his wife, Armand's mother, was part black. It was not a secret that was kept. Armand's father knew it and lived with it and continued to love Armand's mother, as far as we know. And they kept it from Armand. And somehow, and here's another of Chopin's indictments, somehow they nevertheless raised Armand to hate. Armand's father and mother were willing to overlook racial differences. And in fact, they treated the slaves well, too but they let the fires of racist hatred consume Armand's soul. Maybe they didn't work hard enough, or maybe the power of society was too strong. Armand grew up disgusted by race, disgusted at the thought that the purity of his blood would be blemished in his progeny. Is this overstating the case? Would people really act like this? It's hard to say at a distance, but I think the answer is probably yes toughest action to accept here is that Desiree took her baby out to the bayou and disappeared, presumably died, victims of suicide or falling prey to the conditions. She had her mother, a loving mother, waiting for her, but Desiree has embraced the rules of the South. She's internalized them, the rules condemning race. She has disgraced Armand. This is another of Chopin's great themes. Where do women fit? How do they find their way? Armand has a problem. He can't overcome his own racism. But Desiree has a problem, too. She defines herself through Armand. Quote, marriage and later the birth of his son had softened Armand Albany's imperious and exacting nature greatly. This was what made the gentle Desiree so happy, for she loved him desperately. When he frowned, she trembled, but loved him. When he smiled, she asked no greater blessing of God. End quote. What has Armand done to earn this? That's a question Chopin wants us to ask, I think. And another question, is this healthy for Desiree? Is this the way we want women to define themselves? Should any woman, any person, define herself through a man like this? That's insidious, too. Imposed by society as prominent in 1893 as it was in 1863, and maybe it was a tougher question for readers to grapple with even see as a question they should be asking. By 1893, the problems of slavery were well aired in literature. The problems of patriarchy were less exposed. Chopin was barely read for 70 years after her death. When she was rediscovered, she was recognized as a pioneer, an early feminist, a hero, and all because of observations like this. A simple, melodramatic tale. A woman and her baby who are mistreated, a surprise twist of an ending, the sort of story you can read or tell a friend about without thinking too hard about the backdrop or the themes. And yet, if you try to think at all about it, if you accept a simple truth like 
Armand and Desiree were in love and had a beautiful life ahead of them and it ended in tragedy. A simple truth like that, and it can be a hammer coming down on the ice, can crack things open if you're not so warped that you think, well, the tragedy was inevitable because races shouldn't mix. That's how God wants it. And the purity of the white race is more important than raising a child in a loving household. Here's another neat trick. Chopin pulls off another one you can slide right past. When Armand is happy, when he thinks Desiree and her baby are white, he treats his slaves better. As soon as he thinks they're not, he goes back to his old ways. He treats his slaves worse. You could imagine this the other way around, right? A person who thinks, well, this woman I love is part black and now my child is black. Couldn't this be like a Dick Cheney move? who discriminates against gays all his life, but has a change of heart when his own daughter comes out. Those politicians who support stem cell research when one of their own family members has a disease that could be helped by it. Armand could say, wow, look at this, this great feeling in me, love. It's opened me up, it's made me a better person, and wow, this woman I love happens to be part black. And so is my child. The love I feel for them has awakened me to their innocence and the unjustness of this system, and I should treat these slaves as my father did, in a spirit of kindness. If I'm going to own them at all, at the very least I should treat them with some decency. But no. Slavery has bent him, it's warped him onto the other path, where his anger and humiliation finds their outlet in his cracked whip. If you're reading this story in 1893, or any time afterward, for that matter, and you think Armand is a hero, that he's only doing what's right and natural, well, the best thing you can say about Armand is that he's a product of his era, and his horrible actions and horrible attitude need to be viewed within that framework. Desiree doesn't view him as a villain, and that's because they're all living within that framework. They've all accepted it. They're all suffering under that regime. But if you were reading the story and you think Armand is a hero for restoring order, well, what do you make of the ending? Do you think Armand is still a hero, even though it turned out that he was black? Isn't he worse now, more hypocritical? Isn't he not just tainted, but he essentially killed Desiree and her baby with his intolerance? Can you really support a system, a worldview that leads to this kind of hatred? People did. People did. Miscegenation was... I'm going to get emails. I can guarantee you I will get emails, angry emails, about this one. (laughs) It's kind of incredible to me. People would be listening to the show, but glad to have listeners. There is this attitude, though. Beneath it all is this attitude, leave me alone and let me be racist. They don't say that. They object for other reasons. Why do you have to be woke? Why are you virtue signaling? What they mean is, leave me alone and let me be racist. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'll respond and maybe I'll just drag those to the deleted pile. Anyway, miscegenation was illegal in the United States for decades after this. It was illegal in many states until 1967, when the Supreme Court finally declared that race-based legal restrictions on marriage were unconstitutional. 
that's another story. The story of Loving v. Virginia. A fascinating case that I should do a show about. I know it's not exactly literature, but it gives you the backdrop for so much of literature, including Kate Chopin and William Faulkner and writers in the North, too, for that matter. All American writers, whether they're explicitly writing about race or not. Not writing about race is also a choice that includes race as part of it. It's just how things are in America. That's the society we live in. That's the legacy that slavery has handed to us all. Desiree's baby is not a modern story. A modern story would stay with Desiree, I think, would explore her decision, would give us more of her point of view. Or we would be in Armand's mind more than we are. We could go deeper into the realm of hatred and see what it does to him after he learns the truth, the psychological bending he has to do to make sense of it all, the anger he feels, the humiliation. We'd see Desiree's self-sacrifice from the inside. Would those stories be better? I'm not so sure. As Chekhov said, the job of the artist is not to provide answers, but to ask questions. Maybe those questions would be more insightful and penetrating had Chopin lived a century later. Or maybe not. Maybe they wouldn't resonate the same way. We have what we have. Chopin in the thick of it, writing with the tools available to her, writing a hundred short stories in 15 years, plus her novels. Writing stories that found an audience in their day and then disappeared for a few decades before being rediscovered. Writing stories that posed questions that are relevant even now. Questions about race and gender and living lies and eternal truths. Human truths, human considerations, which strike me as important, which strike me as relevant as from within the plague of coronavirus, we look back to another plague and ask ourselves, why did any of this need to happen? Did we do enough to prevent it? And what does it say about us that we didn't? We can ask that about coronavirus. We can ask it about slavery. And we can anticipate the next pandemic the next national tragedy, the next physical attack or widespread moral stain, and ask whether we will retain our humanity in the face of it, or if we will succumb to the darkest part of our soul. Whether we will come out of our quarantine and walk toward the glory of sunshine and goodness, or whether our destiny is to give in to the forces of ignorance and self-serving hypocrisy to wait like rats for the next curse to infect us, to exchange the promise of enlightenment for abject debasement, to dwell forever in darkness and despair. Mm. Yikes. Well, I never promised you a happy ending, did I? Uh, that's going to do it for this special quarantine edition of the History of Literature. My thanks to Kate Chopin for writing this little story, setting forth all these great questions for us to grapple with. And my thanks to you, dear listeners. Hey, we're getting close to April. And that means another round of bonus content for Jack Wilson Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to support the show, you can head on over to Patreon.com patreon.com slash literature and sign up there if you sign up or if you're already a supporter my thanks to you for helping me out 
You will get a special episode of ad-free bonus content with one or maybe two Jack Wilson original stories. I hope you enjoy them. And this week, we're thanking new patrons, patrons Graciela, Graciela, Joan, and Michelle M. Or Michele M. Not sure. For the rest of you, you can dive into the archives or wait for the new episodes. Please do. I'm trying to do two a week now that we're under quarantine. Please do subscribe and rate and review and all those good things that help us get the word out. And please do stay safe and healthy. My heart is with you all. My mind, my heart, and my voice, but especially my heart. These are scary times. And we will hopefully get through it together, dear listeners. We will get through. Let's believe that. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.